Hello, and welcome to Inclusionomics, a podcast that provides tools to all women who are challenged with finding or having access to positions of power. We help you navigate the path to being seen, being heard, and being included. Everyone is welcome here. It is an inclusion podcast after all, and we hope that you're here for all of that. is good speech to your advancement and promotion at work or just navigating everyday life and what are the hidden rules about what's good hi i'm lisa gates founder of story happens here i coach unapologetically ambitious women to own their story amplify their influence and thought leadership and rise up and I'm Stacy Gordon of Rework Work, where as a diversity, inclusion, and career strategist, I strive to reduce bias in hiring and barriers to entry. In today's episode, Unapologetically Speaking, we're taking a look at how the way we speak influences how we are perceived by others and who defines standard American English in the first place. So let's answer these questions and more. Yeah, how about that first question? you know, standard American English, what is it and who defined it? Well, as I mentioned before, right, I am from England and I always think of the King's English. Even when we talk about standard English, the phrase the King's English still comes into my head. <laughs> right. And, and, and what does the King's English mean uh, to other people that were educated that we're professional, that we're intelligent, right? Yeah, usually upper class. <laughs> upper crust. Yeah, she's that's very upper crust of you. Um, that's a good place to start. Where did standard English come from? Well, you know, I did a trusty Google search, right? Because you can trust everything that you find on Google. <laughs> <laughs> and... What I found was in the American Heritage Guide to Contemporary Uses and Style, a definition that I like. And it says the term standard English refers to both an actual variety of language and an idealized norm of English acceptable in many social situations. And I think that's a perfect uh, um, definition because it talks to, to the actual language and to the idealized language that's acceptable. And I think that's the piece that's important, right? It's like, what's acceptable? <laughs> what's acceptable, right. So, so I'm going to uh, talk about, I'm going to borrow from an HBR article called, These Students Speak Perfect Spanglish and Now They're Learning to Own It. And in that article, the last quote, uh, the last sentence says, a standard dialect is simply the standard because the people who are in power made it the standard. And we, we now see, of course, for years and years that standard American English is, you know, in, in the education system all the way through that, you know, standard American English and grammar are what's acceptable. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, it's the same as everything else in life, right? It's like history is written by the victor and standard English is also written <laughs> by those in power. And right. so what's standard today, and this is why it changes. Um, and I, I think that it's interesting to see that people have 
you know, very different thoughts around what's actually standard and what's acceptable. Right, right. Well, just talking about, um, so, so a few more, a couple more definitions might be in order here. So let's say that, you know, you might speak in quote, black vernacular when you're out with your friends and then switch to standard American English when you're at work. So this is what's known as code switching. Or we might mix English and Spanish together, also known as Spanglish. And this is what experts, I suppose, linguists call code meshing, where you're mixing both languages. And um, <clears throat> so the code switching and code meshing are going to be something we're talking about through throughout um, Right. And uh, I think for, the, for those of us that code switch and code mesh, we're like, oh, we don't need a definition for it, but all right, that's what it's called, right? Like this, has been, right. <laughs> this has been going on throughout time. And I think it, the interesting thing about code switching is, you know, in, in my opinion, right, you have to code switch because it's necessary for you to get ahead. Um, if, you, if you want to be able, like you have to know what the standard English is and you have to be able to speak it. And if you can't, um, it's going to be a problem. And part of that too, we talk about language in terms of the words we use, but also um, accents, right? Mm -hmm. It's not only the, and I think this is why for me, you know, being born in, in, in the UK, I think of the King's English, when people say standard English, right? But the thing about the King's English, what is uh, what triggers for me is it's not just the words; it's that 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 sort of haughty upper crust tone that comes with it, that accent. Right. It's status and privilege <laughs> and ownership and part of you know you're part of the landed gentry, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And then you, you know, you've told me before that when you came to the U.S. that you, you taught yourself to eradicate, you eradicated your accent. I did. I did eradicate right. my accent. And I, but so I why'd you that. do that? I did that because I wanted to fit in. And, and there it was funny because I wasn't trying to fit in with the standard English. I was trying to remove some of that. I was trying to be able to talk slang and speak the way that my friends did because I went from London to Brooklyn, New York. Um, right. And, you know, in London, I stuck out like a sore thumb because I was black in a very white world. And then in Brooklyn... Um, I didn't stick out unless I opened my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Which you were wont to do. Yeah. Yes, because as y'all know, I don't ever stop talking. <laughs> you know, I had a, a, a similar experience when I was um, studying theater and performing in plays. At, at the time, they really stressed having control of your diction and your speaking style so that you were putting the ends of words like interesting. You were saying it with the I-N-G full stop, not leaving off the G. And so that you were understood and could convey yourself to the back wall of the back of the audience. And even way before that, um, you know, kind of the Catherine Hepburn style of speaking was this very, 
it had a little British tinge to it, but but all the actresses of the old timey day were 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 sort of made in that you know um, uh, emulated Catherine Hepburn. It yeah. was the right way to be a great actress. Well, speaking speak of as actresses, a, as an actress, right? I mean, I, I, this is not my world, but I've I heard that Courtney Cox had a very country accent that she had to work very hard to get rid of it before she landed mm-hmm. Friends. And you know, she like no one would look at her now and think country accent really, but went through I guess it was months of training to uh, to change the way that she spoke. Um, and so when you think right, about right. So it's all it, it, it's all about how we want people to perceive us, or how people are judging us, right? Um, when we're not conscious or uh, of of speaking well. So if you are from East Texas or Georgia or somewhere in the South, you know there's a there's a stereotype that you're a dumb hick if you speak that way. Uh, similar, you know, Boston, certain Boston accents or. Uh, you know, anywhere in the, the sort of central part of California, people will talk with a little bit of a, a twang. Well, and where I was that. raised in oh, far sorry, northern yeah. California, everybody spoke like cowboys, kind of like, mm. I, I call it cowboy talk. <laughs> and and I wanted to eradicate that. I didn't want to speak that way because I didn't want to be perceived as a farmer or a farm girl, right? right. So... There, the, there was definitely some, I wouldn't call it for me, I, I guess it is code switching, but it's, it's intentionally trying to change your language so that you're not judged. Right. Um, but that is, so interestingly, a couple, so many things popped up as you were talking about that, because one, so I spent the last couple of days doing um, on-site with a client, right, and um, conducting training for them. And in one of the sessions... We were talking about accents. It came up because they have a global uh, footprint and they have offices in a number of different areas. And there are some issues that might happen, right, between people in different offices. And we were talking about accents and um, somebody said exactly what you just said, right? That, you know, well, people from the South are sometimes not perceived as well. And she said, I'm sorry, what does that mean? I've never heard that. And so we're all looking at her like, wait, what do you... How do you not, like, what, what do you mean you haven't heard this? So we explained, you know, that yes, sometimes there's this, this um, uh, perception that people with a very thick country accent are considered as not inte- as intelligent. And she said, oh, but we're so proud of our accents in the South. And I said, you know what, that's a great point, right? So when we're talking about this standard English, when you're in the South and you have the Southern accent, they can, they're very prideful of that. So if you go there and you are speaking with the standard English, then you're what? You're a Yankee. And, <laughs> and then, exactly. then you're derided because of, of geography. So it's really interesting. It's not only just, um, I think, standard English changes based upon geography as well as the, wordage, uh, the words that we use. So um, that's an interesting Yeah, and there's... There's also sort of a social, a, a political, if you will, aspect to it. Uh, I was talking with a woman named Janelle McCloskey, who's the associate director of the university writing program at Drexel. And she works with um, young students um, day in, day out, helping them bring diversity 
in the way that they write and the way that they speak to honor it and to make use of the usefulness of it in terms of, of, of clarity of writing. And <clears throat> she gave me something that, that I'm just going to sort of read in parts. She, she wants to, she say, talks about how other Englishes, so black English or, or, you know, Spanglish, um, could be more clear and direct than standard English. And so she uses the example of the word be, which is common in African-American vernacular, but also in some other regional varieties of English spoken by white people. So she pulled this example from a book called Other People's English, Code Meshing, Code Switching, and African-American Literacy by Vershawn Ashanti Young. And so the example is, in standard English, you would say, she is working. Now, in standard English, this could mean she's at work at the present moment, or it could mean that she's employed. And those two different meanings can only be derived um, by knowing, you know, sort of the context surrounding the sentence to be sure what the meaning was, right? But in African-American English, you could say, she working. And this construction means that she is working at the present moment. If she says, she, she be working, this means that she's employed. So there's ambiguity present in standard English construction that isn't present in African-American vernacular. It's more nuanced. So, um, and she was, was saying to me that all dialects and varieties of English have instances like this where meaning is communicated a lot more clearly than in standard English. So in her work with, with um, her students, she wants to celebrate and bring all this to the fore. So, you know, you have this sort of a movement afoot that is saying, look, all of it should be included. We should be inclusive about language. But there we are in our workplaces where our pocketbooks are at stake. Right. You know? Right, or just being included. That. What's that? No, I think that's a very interesting take. I hadn't heard um, heard that in terms of the yeah. you know, the specificity of of the language. Well, I think it goes to show that you know um, white privilege once again, you know, um, trying to take the upper hand or just assuming the upper hand or what's correct. Um, um, when it's not necessarily that clear, but it's just proper. And, you know, the whole world, at least here in America, is driven in that direction. So what happens, what happens at work? Well, I was going to say, right, we're we're switched, we're um, programmed, right, to speak in that standard way. And so mm-hmm. when you are, when you're at work, like that's, it's like putting on a suit, right? To go to work. You have to put that that's on right. to get to work. Um, you can't show up in, you know, flip flops and, uh, well, we do live in California, so, but. <laughs> 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 Can I just say, segue for a second, when I first moved to California and got to work and saw people in flip flops and shorts, I about lost my mind. 
having in New York, where we were in, in, you know, it was a big deal if you went to work in a suit with no pantyhose. And I was just like, I can't even understand what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. We dress down so much in California. So um, wrong metaphor there. But um, <laughs> yeah, well, so have you ever, has anybody ever said to you, quit talking white, you talk so white. Me? Of course not. What? <laughs> if I had a, a dollar for every time someone had said that to me, I'd be a very rich woman. Um, yeah. And especially... Yeah, so I mean, there's like the this accent. reverse discrimination, right? There's, well, and it's, it's that idea that, you know, you are, um, you're, you're too white. You're too uppity. You think you're better than mm-hmm. others um, mm-hmm. because you're speaking in this standard English. Um, and so it, it's, it's a very interesting dilemma to have, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and so you, you really do have these, these two, like for me, a lot of the times I had to code switch in the other way because my accent was so proper. Uh, it was fine when I was at work and it was fine. And when I was at school around the teachers, they just loved me. Right. Um, but when I was in, in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, I had to really dig deep and um, work to change how mm-hmm. I spoke and, and, mm-hmm. and interact in order to fit in. You know, this reminds me of the article, HBR article called The Cost of Code Switching, which is, uh, you know, a couple months old. And we will put these links um, on the website. Um, the, the cost of code switching is just think about, you know, how you are with your friend, friends and then how you need to be at work and the constant, constant vigilance of monitoring your behavior and monitoring how people are perceiving you and, and how exhausting that is. Uh, And yeah, that you, again, you know, for, for women, um, you know, the sort of, uh, what do we call it? The stereotype or the truth is that we're off. We often have to, perform at double speed in order to be perceived as half as good as our male counterparts. And that goes triple down and quadruple down for um, African-Americans and Latinas, you know, so there's this constant having to prove ourselves. Um, And, you know, so when it comes to language, it's just like another layer of complexity you have to be mindful of. But my hope for the Um, white people listening to this is just to become conscious of the effort that it might take for somebody to fit in, to just plain old fit in. Right. And not, and not be judged. So, I mean, when it comes to the uh, workplace, you know, I'm sorry, do you have another meal? No, no, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think when it comes to the workplace and we look at that, it's, it's also not just, um, the idea that yes, you're you're working harder. Like no one's looking for a sob story, right? We're not saying, oh, you have to treat people differently because they're doing more, right? But what we want is for you know when you're at work, for you to at least acknowledge that um, if somebody is struggling to speak in uh, in English, 
So what, what I think we're looking at is in the workplace is for individuals to, to at least acknowledge that, yes, if somebody is, if English is their second language and they're struggling to make a thought, don't jump in and finish their sentence for them, right? Don't uh, step over them and let them finish the thought they're trying to get out. And also we talked about perception. There's a perception that maybe this person isn't as intelligent, but understanding that it takes a little longer for them to process because they have to, they're usually thinking in their native language and then they have to translate to English and then they have to get the words out. So yes, there's going to be a delay. That delay does not mean, um, you know, less intelligence. That is actually more intelligent because they speak more languages than you do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think too, you know, with, um, I remember when I was speaking, trying to become fluent in Spanish, I would ask to be corrected sometimes. I, 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 but some people take it upon themselves being, you know, the educated white person in the room, English speaker to correct somebody. Or another thing that they do is, is they say, where are you from? Right? Like instantly othering the other person instead of just letting them speak and say what they have to say. Yeah. Right. So it, it just puts this, um, this layer in between your potential communication when you stop the conversation to say, where are you from? Like, so if they said Myanmar, what does it matter? I mean, yes. Okay. Yes. I don't mean it so harshly, but um, it, I know what you mean. <laughs> it's not necessarily relevant to the conversation. You as the listener are, are, are actually making a judgment. You're evaluating them in that moment when, when you're saying that, right. Or any accent, any accent um, is, is it's yes. We could say that you're just being curious and interested, but really when you look at it, you're, you're othering them. You're seeing them as different and calling them out for it, which can make people pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one of those things that when we look at, um, you know, what happens to, we do a lot of this uh, diversity and inclusion work. And we talk about all of these different things. And what can happen is people get frustrated and they say, well, how am I supposed to talk to anybody then? Right. I don't know what to say. And um, I think that the answer is, at least the answer I usually give people, is that you need to not be thinking about all the things you can't say, but think about all the things you can say. Think about the questions you can ask. Think about um, the ways that you can actually listen and let people feel that they were heard rather than jumping in to finish someone's uh, sentence, let them finish and then say, what I heard was X, right? Right, just Am great communication um, <laughs> chops, right? The way you would um, do well to affirm anything. Right. Um, and I think it's giving people those tools to understand uh, like how really we need to communicate better. Um, I say this over and over again, like we really just need as people um, to be able mm -hmm. to communicate better and what better way than to talk about it as we talk about unapologetic speak, you know, like I'm not going to be 
apologetic about the fact that I tried to change my accent. I'm also not going to be apologetic about the fact that, you know, if I decide I want to change my accent to something else, then I'm going to do that, right? Like that's, it's my prerogative to do so. Um, and in fact, I remember, gosh, this was years ago. I don't know if you remember this, Lisa, when Madonna, like, didn't she go to England and then came back with like a British accent or something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Remember what an uproar that caused? Yes. Oh my God. Suddenly she was this effete, sort of elite, uh, speaking. I don't know what she was trying to do. She was trying to reinvent herself yet again. Well, but the but, thing is, uh, right. But so think about that. All she did was change her accent, the way that the words come out of her mouth. And all of a sudden, things about her changed she was perceived differently she was either perceived as a snob or as pretentious or as trying too hard or I mean there's just all these things right <laughs> and it's just it changed her accent you know I I it's so interesting about that that uh, I did a I was in a play where I had to have an upper crust British accent and I don't remember regionally what it's what it was called but we were also out in the audience before the show started, speaking with the audience. And, and we had this whole improv, passing out of bickies and cookies and, and talking with the audience. And we'd researched train lines and, and routes and streets that were local to us. I don't remember any of it now, but I got caught flat-footed at one point when... Um, uh, someone who, in the audience from who, who was from London said, asked me exactly where I was from. And I just had to skirt my way out of there. I had, you know, right. So, so, you know, my act, my accent gave me away because it wasn't perfect. It wasn't mm. perfect for that region. He says, where are you really from? So we're so attuned to making the judgments of, and to me it was a, it was more, I'm sure it was tongue in cheek, but it was, it was meant to distinguish whether I really belong to society or not. Right. Right. You know, well, and, and it's not just the, the accents, right? It's also, so we're talking about language. We're talking about the words we speak and how we're judged by that, but it's also some of the expressions and the funny things that we, yeah. say. um, and, and, and even, um, so I, I think I accidentally embarrassed uh, one of the consultants that I work with uh, the other day because she said y'all when we were um, on a phone call with a client and, and I brought attention to it. And, um, and she said, you know, but she happens to live in Texas and, but she's not from Texas and she doesn't have a Southern accent either, but it's just one of those things where she's gotten used to saying y'all, but she said it in a really like deep Southern way. <laughs> and it was, it was so funny. And so I can't remember what I said about it, but it did bring attention to it. And so she acknowledged and she said, as soon as the word came out of my mouth, she said, I felt it. She was like, I felt the way I said it was different. And she was like, well, I was just thinking that nobody would notice. <laughs> <laughs> wow interesting. we all did notice it was just it was so different you know and so you you do notice um just going back to what you said before about having your ears attuned well if i said to you don't you know 
<laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you'd think I was from Wisconsin or Minnesota or somewhere, right? Yeah. You immediately think Fargo or, <laughs> or something along those lines or somebody from Canada. You know, you just, you just immediately try to identify um, where somebody's from. And I, I think probably that is, goes back to cave times, I would think. Right. That you you're in a sense trying to protect yourself or protect your clan or know, you know, know, know where the enemy is. Um, uh, So it's just, it's just fascinating to me, but I, I guess, you know, the question for me is, well, I was recently teaching a workshop where, where, I was talking about the idea of calling out bias um, statements or incidents as they happen with humor or just with, with reality, with, with attention to it, to say something in the moment as it happens. And I, and I think about this with language too. So um, I asked the audience, you know, is this, is my recommendation standing here in front of you as a white um, woman? Um, is is it coming from my privilege, or do you think it's possible for for anyone in the room, people of color, to do the same? Like, do you feel that you have that permission? And one woman, a, a black woman, raised her hand and said, "No, I don't feel that I do. I feel like my." My job would be at risk. I'd be more inclined to kind of gather my allies um, I, and find out if there's somebody who can speak on my behalf, not to that the offender, but with them. She said, I'd rather go in with a couple of people to talk about it and not do it in the moment. And pretty much split down the line, the white People in the room said, yeah, I'll say something. And the people of color said, no, I won't. And I think that's that double bind too. So, you know, if you were speaking in black vernacular on a film set, for example, or at work, um, you know, I, I think you'd have to have I don't know, and maybe I'm making this up, but a pretty solid position, like you're safe. Right. Your job isn't at stake. Right. And that's, so that right there is exactly the point of, that's like belonging, right, at work. Yeah. <laughs> you know you belong at work when you can go to work and you can be yourself. Now, of right. course, you know, we also have these discussions. People go, well, you know, you can't just come to work and, and, and be, you know, be completely yourself because, you know, you can't just let it all hang out. And it's like, I get that. There's still respect and boundaries. We're not going crazy, but I should be able to, to come to work and not have to uh, change who I am at my core in order to, to do my job. Um, and so I think it is important um, mm-hmm. for, for us to think about that and realize that, Inclusion means allowing people to be themselves and accepting who they are, right? Accepting that they are different from you. You may not like 
that they're different than from you. You might not like some of the things they do, but it's as long as it's not harmful to you, right? You just, you need to be able to accept that people are different and allow them the space to be different. Right. And I think too much of the time we restrict people. You must be like me in order for us to coexist. Exactly. Exactly. And that's not the case. So I think the other thing too, that we want to hit on in terms of um, speaking and being unapologetic is uh, uh, apologies in general, right? Yeah. Apologies, Women, period. Yes. We, we have such a, a tendency to use that in our language. While we're on that subject, we want to to talk about that and make sure that we 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 bring that up too. I know for me, I made a huge effort over the last couple of years to stop starting sentences with "I'm sorry," but right, I'm sorry that I didn't get this to you in time. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, my bad. I'm sorry. I think I literally take it out of my vocabulary. It it it, it it's one of those words that absolutely makes me crazy when I hear it. And uh, there, are, another one is interesting. When people say interesting, it drives me crazy. We all have these little peccadillos, these things that just bug the hell out of us. But the sorry one is uh, almost makes me yell <laughs> when I hear people do it. And then when I hear myself do it, thinking I'm so perfect and that I've eradicated that, nope, there it is, shows up again you know, in a moment of insecurity, there it is out of your mouth. Yeah. And, and it, it really is. I believe, I don't think that we're to blame. It's that we're expected to be so deferential, right. And um, polite. Yes, deferential for sure. That is that's a, that's a good way of putting it. And I know for for sure in my language, I've taken it out. So I used to start emails with, um, "I'm sorry that it took me so long to get back to you," um, and I don't anymore because now it's like you know what? In my head, I'm thinking, "You're lucky I'm responding at all." <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. Here's what you asked for. Right. So, um, and we're all tired of of receiving that too. We don't we don't need the sorry. Right. You know, um, yes, I'm, of course, there are occasions when you need to apologize. I was going to say, unless you're genuinely sorry for hurting someone, then. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I think those are the, the, the top ones. And in fact, you know, years ago, um, but I think it's still out there somewhere. I wrote a, an article around the idea of like the five things that women need to um to take out of their vocabulary. And that was the number one, or I think it was the five things that women need to stop apologizing for Mm -hmm. um, and how to reword those things. And so I think that that is um, something that we all need to do. And you know what? We say women because women get the focus of that, but there's probably men that do it as well. We all need to stop. It's like, stop taking the blame for things that aren't even really your fault. Right. And, and it's a way, I think, you know, it's how we take the heat off of ourselves or we hope to take the heat off. But sometimes by apologizing for whatever the transgression was, these minor things, um, they might not have noticed it if you haven't said anything. Right. <laughs> and now you're putting a big spotlight on it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, just going back to language in general, like, I, I think that, 
Um, that's why I love doing this podcast because we get the, the time and space to talk about these, um, these situations and just kind of have people thinking a little bit about how we perceive others, how we treat others, uh, what we say to others and what effect that has um, on others. And so hoping that maybe today, you know, if you're listening, that people are th- thinking a little bit differently and definitely that they're speaking a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, thank you for engaging on this. This was really fun. Awesome. Well, Lisa and I are here sharing our learning and experiences with you. And we hope that if you like today's discussion, that you'll like us, share us and listen in next time. You have been listening to Inclusionomics with Lisa Gates and Stacey Gordon. Visit inclusionomics.net to subscribe and download.